0: Welcome back to the Brave Marriage Podcast, a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. I hope wherever you are that you're doing well and enjoying the series on marriage, mutuality, and gender roles. And thank you to those of you who've recently left ratings of the podcast. I really appreciate it. On today's episode, we're picking up where my conversation with Steven Twyla left off. They had talked about having few resources available to them in the 70s as they got married. And I'd like to share a little bit about my story in context as well, because what I plan to do today is talk about Christian resources and especially Christian books on marriage to help us think wisely about what we're inputting and how we're internalizing what it means to be married and to do marriage well as Christ followers. So I started reading Christian relationship books in the early 2000s, and back then, the only way to access those resources was through my local Christian bookstore. I lived in a small town, and our church had a library, but it wasn't updated regularly, and I wasn't sure if my local public library would have the resources I was looking for. So what I had to choose from was whatever my local Christian bookstore sold. So I picked up a few Christian books on male-female relationships in high school, one by Joshua Harris, one by John Eldridge, and one by Emerson Egricks. I read their books, and apart from seeing what was modeled for me at church and at home, I really didn't have any explicit teaching on marriage, so I thought that what I was reading was gold. You know, I started dating in high school, and I was interested in counseling, and so I wanted to know the right way early on to go about dating and, hopefully, one day marriage. What I did then was I assimilated this information on marriage and male-female relating into my pre-existing schema, into the Christian worldview that I already held. I didn't question what these books were saying I trusted. Because apart from my youth group and the theological conversations I was having with my mom and grandmother, I didn't know any better. I assumed that if someone was published in the Christian bookstore, then they must be credible and trustworthy, and what they're saying in their books must be true and true to scripture. And I never doubted, I never had any qualms about what I was reading. Given my personality, I could see myself becoming this godly woman that I was reading I was supposed to be. I'd always wanted to do what was right and what was best and what was honoring to God, ultimately. So I lived by these teachings. I internalized these messages, not even realizing that they ran counter to my church doctrine, because these authors seemed so sure of themselves. And I thought that by following them, I would not only be pleasing God, but also my future husband. And so I read a few books through high school and college. And then when I got to grad school, when I got to seminary, my professor of couples counseling, Toddie Holman, had us read Jack and Judith Balswick's book, A Model for Marriage, Covenant, Grace, Empowerment, and Intimacy. And that is when I realized, number one, the model for marriage I was reading in grad school resonated with me so much more than anything I had read before. And it felt more true to me. You know, it felt more intuitive. And number two. I thought, perhaps this Christian teaching on marriage is qualitatively and fundamentally more Christ-like than anything I had read up to that point. If you've been listening for a long time, you'll recognize the Boswick's names, as I mentioned them in their work on differentiated unity, all the way back in episode four. For the longest time, I hoped that teaching marriage differently, by teaching healthy relationship dynamics that align with scripture, as a Christian and as a licensed professional, would be sufficient to give listeners a better foundation for their marriages. But the longer I've been in the field and immersed in the world of marriage education in the church, the more earnest and eager I've become about shedding light on things that need to be exposed in order that we all might be able to live healthier and freer and fuller lives in Christ within our homes, within our communities, and within our Christian contexts. So here's my plan for this episode. I want to talk you through a few books that I was able to get my hands on in paperback form that I've read or others have read over the past five decades in the church. Taking one example from each decade, we'll talk about what's good, what's bad, and after taking a look at each one, I'll draw out a few things that I want us to think about as we continue our conversation on marriage, mutuality, and gender roles in upcoming episodes. Starting in 1975 with psychologist James Dobson's What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. Most of the book talks about low self-esteem, depression, fatigue, loneliness, isolation, and financial, sexual, menstrual, and parenting problems as wives and mothers experience them from the perspective of Dr. Dobson. What's good about this book is that I think Dobson is genuinely trying to help husbands at this time better understand their wives. He's addressing the most common complaints that he hears in his office or on his broadcast, and he attempts to give men advice on how to love their wives better and remedy problems at home. What's bad is that he tells men in Chapter 5 that, as husband, He is her sole reflector of self-esteem due to her being isolated at home. Thus, he needs to take his job as head of the household seriously to save his wife from mental illness and fulfill her emotional needs. He also encourages husbands to understand that wives need romance and emotional connection in the same way that husbands, as it was thought at that time, need their biologically driven sexual appetites fulfilled sooner rather than later. So I wonder... What parts of this teaching have you heard in the church and believed to be true? What of this do you not believe is true, but are still influenced by, nonetheless, in the way you relate in your marriage or in what's been taught to you in your circles? It's important to remember that Dobson's teachings are coming out of a time where teachings on marriage were already bad for women, as Steve Lee stated on our last episode, So, rather than placing all the blame and responsibility for the husband's attitude at home on the wife, Dobson seems to be trying to help wives by getting their husbands to take on some responsibility as well. As he wrote in his book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, in 1980, For the man who appreciates the willingness of his wife to stand against the tide of public opinion— Staying at home in her empty neighborhood and in the exclusive company of jelly-faced toddlers and strong-willed adolescents, it's about time you gave her some help. Because culture at the time doesn't really have a great way to accommodate husbands and wives as more women go into the workplace and the love-based marriage with their traditional roles are really being challenged. So Dobson is paying attention to the well-being of husbands and of wives, But his solution is to try to get men to take better care of their wives. He encourages husbands to steward their household rule with benevolence and loving leadership rather than ruling their households with harshness or abuse on the one hand or passivity and disengagement on the other. So I can see where people thought at the time that this advice was helpful, healthy, and loving. Wives at this time probably appreciated Dobson's advice, encouraging their husbands to do something different in order to relieve their pressure and depression at home. But time, distance, and research in social science shows us the deficiencies in this line of reasoning. Number one, biological, psychological, and environmental factors all play into mental illness. So in the first line of chapter two, To state that depression and apathy are merely a fact of life for women that need to be dealt with and normalized in marriage is not only based on availability bias, but proven to be untrue. Furthermore, if a person's depression is linked to environmental factors, the solution is not to prescribe more of the same that's not working. In this case, holing up in the house, relying on one's partner to take care of them, but to help a client change their environmental factors with the appropriate support of a spouse, which means a spouse not fulfilling a caretaker role, but a differentiated partner role. Number two, to suggest that a husband is solely responsible for his wife's sense of self-worth and self-esteem is an immense amount of pressure to place on a husband. If in the 1950s, the advice of the day was for a woman to play a certain part to prop up her husband's ego and to make sure he was happy at home, and if that advice in part contributed to a housewife's mental health during those decades, then we can see that it's illogical to reverse those roles, changing the advice in Christian spaces to get a husband to play a certain part to ensure his wife's happiness. All we're doing there is creating a system of relating in which both husbands and wives feel unhappy to some degree, overly responsible for their partners, and codependent on each other to now meet expectations that have been created through teachings such as this, that neither partner was ever meant to fulfill. I was just having a conversation yesterday with a former professor of mine, and she was saying how worried she is about the low self-esteem she sees among women and about the purposelessness and lack of direction she sees among men. I can't help but think that as a church, we've in part done this to ourselves. The loudest evangelical Christian teachings since the development of the love based marriage have not led to our mutual flourishing, but instead, for many couples who buy into these teachings, to mutual discouragement with themselves and their subsequent blame, shame, guilt, lack of freedom, lack of love, and general misgivings with each other. Somebody research that, please. <laughs> and number three, while Dobson tries to convey the importance of emotional intimacy in marriage for women, In doing so, he diminishes the importance of emotional intimacy in marriage for men, when we know through attachment research that both men and women require a secure emotional attachment to relate in healthy ways with one another. Furthermore, on page 64, he says that men need respect for self-esteem, while women need love for self-worth. Again, both are true, but so is the other side of the coin that men need love for self-worth and women need respect for self-esteem. Sixteen years later, we'll see this treatment of men and women needing love and respect differently in The Handbook of Complementarianism, which we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. And 13 years after that, we'll see a Christian pastor write a best-selling book along the lines of the same premise. And what's so wild to me is that when Dobson wrote about love and respect, He acknowledged that he was writing in gender stereotypes and overgeneralizations. And yet, the conventional wisdom for relating in conservative Christian circles holds these virtues as diametrically opposed. Even though Paul's instructions to couples in Ephesus were an outpouring of his instructions for those in the church to mutually submit to one another, they weren't rigid rules for relating between men and women. Next, we'll look at the book For Women Only a book of essays by different authors written in 1988. What's good about the book is that there are many essays written by many different people with different perspectives. For example, there's an essay by Mary Lou Lacey, encouraging women to grow up into spiritual maturity in Christ. Seeking him first daily above all else, above husband, above children, above all, until women grow up into the fullness of him who is the head, Christ, and learn to love God and others as Christ has called them to. However, there's also an essay by televangelist Robert Shuler called What Does a Man Really Want in a Wife? Five things, he says number one, a confidant, number two, a companion, number three, A creative climate controller, and by that he means his very own source of positivity and possibility thinking at home. For no man, he writes on page 116, will ever leave or stop loving a positive thinking wife who feeds his enthusiasm and self confidence. Number four, for her to be his conscience. And number five, wait for it, that she be his consecrated concubine. This is 1988, folks, the year before I was born. Schuler supports his desire and other men's desire for a consecrated concubine by saying, "We must never forget that God is responsible for this thing called sex." And many counselors agree that sex is a primary cause of problems in marriage. Now, this is where we see the breakdown between the knowledge of a mental health practitioner and a Christian person or pastor with a platform disseminating pop psychology and using the Bible to back it up. At least in Dobson's work, he understands that sexual problems more often expose relational problems in marriage rather than causing them, as Schuller misinterprets. But the difference is, Dobson is a parachurch professional, whereas Schuller is a televised pastor to whom evangelicals looked for spiritual guidance and wisdom on how to relate in marriage. On top of that, there's a world of difference in what these teachings lead to. When a Christian psychologist understands sexual problems as exposing underlying relational ones, they're at least a step closer to helping a couple get to the root of their issues. But if Christians are taught by pastors to believe that there's a causal effect between a lack of sex and relational issues, then what happens, in practice, is that wives feel pressure to provide sex, and husbands feel anxious about not getting it. So they end up doing this dance of pressuring, avoiding, and trying to create desire out of thin air to solve their relational woes. But what they can't see is that it's the teaching itself— rather than the insufficiency of the wife or the enduring need of the husband that's perpetuating the problem rather than solving it. Sex and couples therapists will tell you that that type of pressure and perceived insufficiency leads to more problems, relationally, sexually, and psychologically, not less. But it's hard to know that. It's hard to be convinced of that. When Christian leaders and shepherds use God to command their points, which prove unhelpful and harmful when applied to the Christian marriage. So again, I'm curious, is this something you've heard in the church or been taught or in some way believed? Okay, now we're getting into the 90s, and what I want to point out is that by this time, research in the field of marriage and family therapy had advanced like never before. Both John Gottman and Sue Johnson had done years of research specifically on couples in marriage and intimate relationships. But when Dobson started writing his book to couples in the 70s, the study of marriage relationships was still in its infancy. The pioneers of my field were actually Dobson's contemporaries, because remember, the love-based marriage is extremely new in history, and how to do it well was still unknown. Dobson was a child psychologist who worked with Paul Popeneau, the father of marriage counseling, even though there was no empirically based research at that time. But Popeneau was a former eugenicist who wrote popular marriage advice. And it's this same advice that Steve Lee said on last episode was bad for women in the 40s and 50s. So throughout the 20th century, we have the emergence of the field and study of intimacy and love-based marriage relationships. And the actual study of marriage was running alongside teachings in the church, some of which was based on scripture, but some of which, especially in the 20th century, was based on pop psychology and pseudoscience before there was actually empirically validated scientific study and evidence-based models for working effectively with couples. So, I just want you to keep that in mind. So, in 1996, Gary Smalley wrote a book for Christian couples called Making Love Last Forever. What's good about his book is a lot, compared to what I've shared this far. And that's because he combines scripture and evidence-based principles found in marriage and family therapy. In part one of his book, Smalley gives instructions on how to fall in love with life, the idea being taking personal responsibility before trying to make change in your relationship. And in part two, Smalley gives instructions for how to stay in love with your spouse, getting at the fact that love is a personal choice and decision. Both of these overarching principles are good. What's bad, though, is the perpetuation of gender-based stereotypes, which don't fit for all couples. For example, in chapter 11, entitled, How to Bring Out the Best in Your Maddening Mate, he highlights how men love to share facts while women love to share feelings. On page 192, he says, There's one particular thing we men wish we could control about our wives, sex whenever we want it but as we'll see in chapter 14, that's not how good sex works. So I'll give Smalley credit for saying that's not how good sex works, but I get so frustrated with the perpetuation of stereotypes because in my practice, thanks to Olson's premarital research in the 80s, I have premarital reports that directly express the opposite, both in regard to sexual desire and in loving facts over feelings. So when couples are taught that these traits are gender normative, how are they supposed to feel about themselves when they're wired differently than what these books they're reading are saying? I hear these questions from husbands and wives in my own practice who feel in some way deficient because their personality or desires don't line up, not only with what our society calls masculine and feminine, but then what the church and Christian authors like this have set out as normative and typical. It's not helpful nor is assuming that men are sex animals who can't control themselves but need to for the sake of Christ. That's not helpful either. But anyway, Smalley makes a few points about gender differences that I would call conditioning, such as men tend to be independent while women tend to be interdependent, or men tend to compete and be controlling while women tend to cooperate and be agreeable. I would say that men are conditioned to be independent while women are conditioned to be interdependent. And the reason I would is because 20 years earlier, Dobson observed that women could also be competitive. And in 1991, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was sure to point out that it's women who tend to be controlling of men and therefore need to heed the advice of remaining agreeable and cooperative. So how, as the church, are we to make sense of gender differences when all of these authors are saying different things about men and women in their books based on what they're seeing in their own time and space or in their own work with couples? Well, there are a few things to remember that I think are important. First, men and women are biologically different in some ways, yes, but they are also culturally conditioned to behave differently over time. The traits that are labeled masculine or feminine in a given time and place don't stay the same over time. Rather, they change and reflect their culture. Second, men and women are no more prone, disposition-wise, to certain personality traits than the opposite gender. Research has proven that men and women can both exhibit independence, competitiveness, cooperation, a desire to control, or a desire to be agreeable. Again, I have many research-based premarital reports that say that each of these traits can and do exist in both genders. So what service are we doing to couples when we speak in broad strokes without looking at each individual person and in each individual relationship? And third, we are all prone to cognitive bias and attribution errors. The problem is when we aren't aware of our bias or our blind spots, we teach solutions to problems as we see them not as they actually are. In the case of these authors, they see these issues as gender-based rather than culturally-based, and so they apply a medical model to treating couples, linear logic that might alleviate symptoms in the short term but do nothing to actually help couples long-term, especially when systemic issues are at play. But what's worse is when Christian authors disseminate pop psychology mixed with scripture— It's easy for the reader to think that what they call is truth is God's truth. And so at this point, couples not only have relational injuries that they're trying to seek help for, but now as a result of reading some of these things, they have emotional and psychological injuries as a result of scriptural misuse. Let's take a look at another example of this, moving into the 21st century. Emerson Egrick's best-selling Christian book, Love and Respect, was written in 2004. And starting with what's good about the book, Egricks does use a family systems principle of feedback loops. And I think this book had such huge success because for the first time in Christian literature, at least as far as I'm aware, a psychologically trained Christian minister was saying, hey, these issues you're facing are cyclical. And he names the dynamic for couples, calling it the crazy cycle. What's bad about this book is that it virtually names every couple's dynamic as the same in conflict when research shows that couples tend to have one of three different dynamics in conflict. Not to mention the book does little to address situations of abuse and how boundaries are needed in those cases, not more unconditional respect, which Dobson, at least in 1975, is clear to lay out, that there are some situations in which this model doesn't work and is unsafe for a person or couple. But according to Egricks, when couples get into conflict, the problem is that conflict makes most men feel disrespected, while women tend to feel unloved. In contrast, eight years earlier, Gary Smalley quoted Deborah Tannen in his chapter on what drives one's mate mad, <laughs> quote, Many women could learn from men to accept some conflict indifference without seeing it as a threat to intimacy. And... Many men could learn from women to accept interdependence without seeing it as a threat to their freedom. So who's more right? Smalley, in his suggestion that men can better tolerate conflict than women, but that men don't like feeling their freedom threatened? Or Egrix, when he suggests that what men fear most is disrespect, and conflict makes most men feel disrespected? Well, I would say that no human likes feeling disrespected or likes having their freedom threatened. So to me, their differing emphases seem more like matters of personal experience than matters of universal truth. Egricks confesses his own intolerance of being disrespected on page 68 when he writes, there are many wives who tell me love and respect are the same thing. I respond, no, they aren't, and you know they aren't. The bottom line is that husbands and wives have needs that are truly equal. She needs unconditional love and he needs unconditional respect. So from there, the author spends the book outlining his solution, what he named the energizing cycle, reassuring readers that the cycle will be broken if wives and husbands could just learn to spell love and respect respectively. To spell love to women, Egerix tells men that a wife wants her husband to be close, open, understanding, peacemaking, loyal, and in agreement with Dobson to provide her self-esteem. On the other hand, he tells women that a husband wants his wife to appreciate his conquest, hierarchy, authority, insight, sex drive, and desire for friendship. On page 252, he uses a case study of a woman who calls her mom to tell her that they won't make it to visit her parents that day because her husband is upset. The mother asks why, and the daughter responds, I suppose because we have not been sexually intimate for seven days. Egricks goes on to say that the mom, quote-unquote, let her daughter have it, replying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why would you deprive him of something that takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? So I hope that you can see for yourself the blind spots in the writings of some of these Christian authors. And I wonder how much of this you have bought just like I did as a teenager reading this book, believing it to be true. This shame-based motivation for marital change is a common pattern I've seen in Christian teachings on marriage throughout the past few decades. Certainly not all books lead with shame, but it occurs to me that some of the most best-selling Christian marriage books do. I would love to know what's going on there, that we'd prefer to have shots fired at us, borrowing a phrase from Dobson, (laughs) than to have someone teach on love and marriage in a way that leads to life and grace and truth spoken in love. The last book in my brief literature review through the past five decades is A Model for Marriage by Jack and Judith Balswick. The premise of their book is that by looking at the way the Trinity relates, we can take a few different principles and apply them universally to our relationships in a way that will lead all couples in all places toward life, love, and health relationally. And those are the principles of covenant love, grace, mutual empowerment and servanthood, and the intimacy of knowing and being known. To contrast the Boswick's teaching on sexuality with the previous books we've looked at, they make no mention of gender differences, except to say that it's in our being created male and female that we move toward knowing and being known through emotional and sexual intimacy, and that by communing together in sexual union, we reflect the full image of God. On page 165, They affirm that the erotic expression between the lovers in Song of Solomon goes beyond sexual desire to a longing for the lover, him or herself, making sex a person-centered experience rather than a body-centered experience or a husband-centered experience that wives are shamed into participating in. Imagine how much different teachings like these could make if they were the ones primarily taught to couples in all churches. In Romans 1, 16 through 25, Paul talks about the power of the gospel and how as humans, we are without excuse when we exchange truth for lies and choose to worship created things rather than the creator. Because he says, for what can be known about God has been made plain to them because God has shown it to them. And I tend to think that when human-made principles are applied universally, the fruit of such teachings will be exposed as I believe we're seeing more clearly today in the evangelical church. But when the actual power of the gospel is taught, it brings life and health in its transformation of individuals and couples, not hurt and shame and dysfunction. So I think we have to look at what we've been taught, for better or worse, about Christian marriage and evaluate it accordingly. Is what you're taking in leading you toward Christ and toward freedom and intimacy? Or is what you're taking in leading you away from Christ or from intimacy with each other? My main hope for this episode is that you feel caught up to speed on where we are today in the church as it relates to teachings on marriage. And this series so far has been in no way exhaustive, and there's so much more that I could share. But I think this will give you a good foundation for thinking about what you've been taught and why and how these messages have impacted couples in the church. The most interesting thing to me, the more I've learned and studied this topic, is being able to see how conventional wisdom morphs and changes over time, but how the truth always comes through, always exposes itself, and always bears fruit in what results in a marriage. So again, I hope you're beginning to identify some of the things you've been influenced by just as I've been and have a better understanding of where these things have come from and what's been proven true versus what hasn't been. I hope you'll stay tuned for the next two episodes where we'll dive into egalitarianism and complementarianism to find out what those mean and why it matters to your marriage. Thank you so much for listening to the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Kinsey Dzinski. Podcast editing is by Evan Dzinski. Music is by John Tibbs. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Love is not a battle, love is not a bond, love is just as fragile.